Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. The World Football League started play in 1974. The league's first champion was the Birmingham Americans. It also had teams in Memphis, Orlando, Philadelphia, New York, and a few other markets as well. Had the league's founder, Gary Davidson, taken a little more time, perhaps the World Football League might have stood a better chance at making it. Many of the team's owners had rocky financial situations at best. Second-rate stadiums, limited television contracts, and a small fan base affected the league greatly. And the one team that served as a microcosm of all the problems the league faced was the Detroit Wheels. Almost every problem that faced the World Football League was magnified when it came to the wheels. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the incredible story of a team that was put together in a most unconventional way. A team whose short history is filled with some of the zaniest and craziest scenarios you could possibly imagine. A team that was disbanded, then told not to go anyplace, and then folded again. Stay tuned for the unimaginable story of the Detroit Wheels. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. As always, thanks for listening. As we dive back in time and explore and talk about sports heroes of the past and teams and leagues long forgotten. And today, we're going to talk with Mark Speck, who has written a number of books about teams from a league that tried to take on the NFL and couldn't make it through two seasons, the World Football League. Today, Mark is going to join us for a wonderful discussion about one of the teams from the World Football League, the Detroit Wheels, which he chronicles in a terrific book called Nothing But a Brand New Set of Flat Tires. Now, believe me when I tell you, the Detroit Wheels were one of the most incompetently run sports franchises of all time. The Wheels had an ownership group of 33, none of whom had any experience in running a sports team, none of whom wanted to step up to the plate and take on the role of being the face or voice of the franchise, a team that went out and hired a coach who had no experience when it came to professional football, 
a team that didn't have the money to sign players, a team that was run with a, well, a pay-as-you-go mentality, a team that didn't make it through its first season of existence. Mark has so much to share with us, and some of what he's going to share will absolutely blow your mind. First, of course, just a few reminders. If you can, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, where we make posts on a daily basis. That's at SportsFHeroes. Check us out on Instagram. Look for our page on Facebook and please send us a note and let us know how we're doing or make suggestions for future topics by checking out sportsfh.com. There you can also read more about our guests, find out more about the people and teams we remember, and so much more. That's sportsfh.com. You know, since Sports Forgotten Heroes signed on, We have talked about several teams that have come and gone. Teams like the Cincinnati Royals, Kentucky Colonels, Seattle Pilots, and the Kansas City Scouts. But we have never talked about a team like the Detroit Wheels. Imagine for a moment, you're a professional football player getting ready for training camp. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking about joining your teammates at a small college or something of the sort where you'll spend a few weeks getting to know each other, learning the playbook, and working your tail off to make the team. Now, imagine ownership considers putting you up in tents. Yep, that actually happened, and we're going to talk about that and more with my guest, the author of the book, Nothing But a Brand New Set of Flat Tires, Mark Speck. Mark, thanks for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could be here. Well, thank you for asking me to be on the show, Warren. I appreciate it. Hey, man, first things first. We've got to set this up. So, Mark... Please begin with the World Football League as a whole. Whose brainchild was this? Well, it was a guy by the name of Gary Davidson from California. He had started, uh, kind of been a little bit involved in the ABA back in the 60s. He really wasn't involved very long, but he uh, he uh, kind of was at the beginning of it and uh, got to help it get that started. And then uh, about five years later, he uh, helped start the WHA, the World Hockey Association. Um, he's a little bit more involved in that one. And, uh, you know, after a couple of years, it was doing pretty well. The ABA was still around, so he was feeling pretty full of himself. And he thought, well, I'm going to take on the NFL. So uh, I think he bit <laughs> off a little bit more than he could chew. But, um, you know, um, he, he thought he, he had the chutzpah, as they, they like to say. Um, and he gave it a shot, um, best he could do. Um, but you know, the NFL was pretty tough. Even back then it was tough to try to take them on. So, um, he had a little bit more, more than he could handle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why do you think there are so many attempts 
at competing with the NFL. I just recently did a podcast on the All-America Football Conference. I think many of the listeners would still be familiar with the United States Football League, the USFL. We just recently went through the AAFC, and now Vince McMahon is making a second attempt at the XFL. What is it about the NFL that people think they can take it on and either coexist or win. I think they, I think they are, you know, I don't know if they overestimate, but I think that, you know, football is incredibly popular and it has been for years. And I think these guys say, you know, there's room for somebody else. I mean, this is going, it goes back all the way to 1926 was the first AFL started mm-hmm. to try to compete with the NFL. And then they had another one about 10 years after that lasted a couple of years. And then another one about 1940 that lasted a couple of years, again called the AFL. I don't know why they just didn't have much creativity. <laughs> um, and then called themselves the same thing every time. And it was different guys running it. It wasn't actually like the same people running it. And then, like you said, they had the AAFC, they had the AFL in 1960, um, and then the WFL, uh, USFL. Um, I just think that they, you know, they know that football is popular. And it's, it's It's always been. Um, and I think they, they believe that they can, you know, maybe reinvent the wheel, come up with some kind of new idea that's going to make it a little bit better. I mean, you kind of mentioned XFL with Vince McMahon. He kind of had a, a combination of wrestling and football back, uh, quite a few years ago Mm -hmm. there. And, uh, you know, he tried to make it something different, but I think wrestling fans thought there was going to be more wrestling and football fans thought there were going to be more football and they were both disappointed, I believe. So, um, (laughs) it's just something that, you know, I mean, you know, if you look at it, you know, football and, or uh, excuse me, hockey and, and basketball, I had the two rival leagues back then. And, but baseball hasn't had any since, well, they tried a continental league, which kind of filtered out because of the, um, you know, the New York Mets and the Houston Astros, they had ex- expansion, but, you know, for some reason, football just seems to attract these people every, you know, every decade, it seems like, you know, every 10, 15 years, somebody's coming up with a new idea that, They've got the yeah, got the answer. They can they can buck up against the NFL, and you know they just realize that you know not after too very many uh, games or too many years or too many months or whatever it is that they you know they just uh, a little bit too much to handle, and the NFL is just too strong, mm-hmm. uh, too entrenched in everybody's minds. Um, you know, I mean the, the the level of play in the WFL wasn't that bad. The level of play in the USFL wasn't that bad. And they were in the spring, so they really weren't, you know, against them completely. But it's just the idea that I think there's even a limit to football popularity, and I think they run up against that whenever they try to compete with it. Mm-hmm. Now, now the WFL, which is not to be confused with the World League of American Football, which came many years later, the WFL also came up with a a few ideas that were adopted by the NFL. Do you recall some of those rules that the NFL adopted? Yeah, they they moved the goalposts. Uh, the WFL came up with that first. The NFL at the time had their goalposts in the back of the uh, or up on the uh, on the um, the goal line. You know, and remember all the old videos of guys running into the goalposts mm-hmm. and scoring a touchdown and <laughs> knocking some over sometimes and. Uh, you know, the WFL just saw that the the kickers had really taken over the NFL at the time, and there was too many field goals and not enough action, and so they moved the the uh, goalposts to the back of the end zone, 
the NFL turned around and did the exact same thing. Um, you know, they had uh, kickoffs uh, from the, uh, I think it was from the 35 instead of the, the 40. Um, they also had, um, um, whenever somebody missed a field goal, they returned the ball to the uh, line of scrimmage instead of the 20-yard line like they used to do. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of more of a risk. You know, if you tried one from the 35 or 40, you were kind of risking, uh, you know, giving up good field position if you try if you missed it. So, um, you know, it was just something that uh, the NFL, they did see this, that this was, uh, you know, some good ideas, and they actually took some of them. Um, and there's probably, you know, at least the one that they didn't was the color coded pants that they tried in 75. Thank goodness. As they even, big, I think they sp- even color coded some of the officials. Yeah. I, yeah, I think they did that too. I think they tried that and <clears throat> it was just not a good idea. I mean, <clears throat> I, I, I believe the best, uh, the best, uh, idea they came up with was the action point, mm-hmm. you know, instead of kicking, you know, you had to either run or pass to score the point. So that was a good idea, and uh, you know the Dickeron they had to measure the first downs that lasted the first year, and they they kind of gave up on that because it just didn't work right. It would kind of break down. It wasn't like the chains where you come out mm-hmm. and measure it, and that was it. You know they didn't have any breakdowns with the chains, but they had this gizmo that they laid it down, and somehow it was supposed to stretch out and all this stuff, and it never worked right. And so again, not another not a good idea. Um, but you know, uh, the NFL did take some of their ideas, which were, uh, you know, as, as, as it turns out, as the years have gone by, have, you know, were really good ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Hey, before we, before we get into the, uh, Detroit wheels, one last thing about the WFL, it also wanted to be Gary Davidson wanted this to be the first real world league. In fact, at the press conference to announce the league, there were actually representatives from other countries, from Canada and Japan. As we've come to learn, though, that was uh, somewhat unrealistic. So how did Davidson get a rep from Tokyo to the announcement, the announcing press conference of the league? I think I think a lot of those folks were just kind of his friends, you know, kind of his tennis buddies and that kind of thing. And um, I think he just made a big show of it. I think that was his, like you said, that was his goal. Um, you know, he's talking about going into Mexico. He's talking about Japan, the Orient, uh, going into Europe, having like a European division. Um, he had all these big plans. Um, and, uh, you know, it turns out, you know, they never got to any of these places. And in fact, they had a hard time trying to even getting to places like Shreveport and Charlotte after all was said and done, instead of trying to get to the Orient and Europe, um, they never came to fruition. It was just something that I think they just made a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, it was a lot of hot air. It was a lot of, uh, you know, just, okay, this is, these are our big plans, kind of like the future contracts when they signed all those players to uh, future contracts, like the NFL players, like Stabler and Curly Culp and um, players like that that were big names, but wound up, you know, their contracts were breached or, or nullified because they didn't forget, uh, didn't pay on them. And, uh, um, you know, so again, it was a big, uh, big idea that, you know, well, you get us some publicity and made us look big, made us look like we were serious, like we had the money, but, in the end, it just kind of fizzled out, just like uh, all the plans of being an actually truly world football league. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Detroit Wheels. Now, you've written a bunch about the WFL. You're a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association. You are the WFL expert for the PFRA. I didn't know there was one, but you are him, and I think it's still pretty cool. I wish I was an expert on something. Um, Why write a book about the Detroit Wheels? Well, you know, um, you know, all, all my research, I've been doing research really seriously since like the late eighties. Um, I lived out in Arizona at the time and I would go over to Arizona state and go on the, you know, the, uh, into the library and the microfilm with the old machines that would spool the film through it. And you'd go through all the newspapers and, you know, from back in the day. And I must look at those things till my eyeballs imploded. It was, <laughs> you know, amazing about, you know, looking up this stuff. And, you know, it was just, it wasn't so much the football itself. It was just all these stories that came out of my research. It was just, you know, how players, you know, went without being paid. Players went with, you know, getting their cars repossessed while they're playing the game, the repo man showing up in the parking lot at the at the stadium and <laughs> repoing their cars while they're playing the game. You know, and they're and, and you mentioned uh you were at Randall's Island there earlier, Downing Stadium, the, the showers didn't work, you know, and it was just a, a, a tiny little stadium that had no lights of the lights I believe were from Ebbets Field. Um, you know, it was just all these stories and you know, as you as you got to read them, it was more the behind the scenes things that really captured my attention. You know, instead of just actually the football. I mean, you know, that was the, you know, one of the things we're still working on is trying to get as many stats as we can, because you know, you had you know the basic stuff in the sporting news and some of the newspapers had it. Um, and if you go to the, uh, you know, I've been to the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame where they have the new press releases from the. Uh, from the league and you can get stats that way, but we still haven't have everything. So it, you know, that was start the start of the, of, of really getting interested in it. But as you do your research and look at these things and all these stories that came out of them, you know, players moving in with each other. So, you know, it'd be easier to move in case the in case the team moved, you know, and got switched to another city, they would be all in one house instead of having to all pay rent and, and move out, they would all be together. And, yeah, it was just amazing. I mean, I, I, I was I was just amazed at the at the stories, you know, from a human interest standpoint, from a business standpoint, about basically how not to work, run a business. Um, that you learn from uh, from reading about this, it was it was just completely amazing as far as I was concerned. Like I said, it was just the start of the thing was the the stats, but then once you get past that into the background, it was a it was very very interesting. Yeah, especially some of the people involved, and 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 let's and let's start there. Um, well, first of all, if I read correctly, Detroit wasn't even supposed to be a part of the WFL, at least in the early going. So, how did Detroit wind up in the NFL? Who are the guys behind it? And tell me about a guy by the name of, and I hope I get this right. There's a couple of names uh, as we'll go through this. Uh, Bud Huckel and how he got taken, or did he take Detroit? Well, yeah, you're right. At first, Detroit was not going to be in the league. They were not even considered. Um, and this Bud Huckel guy came up, and he approached Davidson, and said he, you know, he, he had the, uh, you know, a chance to get a team in Detroit. Um, he would do the research. He would get, uh, you know, investors together and all this. 
Um, Davidson didn't even do a background check on the guy. And I guess it turned out he had a lot of um, bad business um, practices throughout his history uh, where he'd been, uh, you know, um, sued by people that, you know, he was in construction. He wasn't doing the jobs, wasn't completing jobs as it turned out, but he talked Davidson into, you know, having him be the owner. He went and did all this work, the legwork. Um, and then just about the time he got it all finished, this other group approached him and said, okay, you give us your, you know, your information and we'll give you like a share of the team. He agreed to it. Turns out they kind of took him, um, kind of wrote him out of the whole thing. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he kind of, uh, then he turned around, sued the team that went on for quite a while during the whole team's existence was, uh, there was lawsuits flying back and forth. Um, you know, when you, when you start a league with, uh, with owners that a lot of the owners are lawyers, that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just, it was just, uh, something that was just really a mess that, you know, when it came out to what the guy was really like, that he had a lot of some, you know, bad business practices and he had lawsuits against him that he wasn't the right choice. So they, they had this other group that came in, um, and they were really backed by, uh, the mayor elect of Detroit at the time was Coleman Young. He had just won the, uh, the election for mayor and he wanted to build a downtown stadium, uh, probably not too far from where, uh, Comerica park is now because he wanted a stadium that would house the tigers and a football team. Well, the lions were moving to Pontiac right about this time. So they mm-hmm. needed another football team. They just didn't want to build a stadium for one team. It just wasn't feasible. And that's why Coleman Young really pushed to have the, the wheels there because he thought, okay, I've got the tigers. I've got the wheels. You know, he called uh, the Lions the Pontiac Lions. They're not Detroit's team anymore. <laughs> he convinced um, he convinced Davidson that you know he could rent uh, Tiger Stadium uh, to start before they got this new stadium built. He convinced him he could do it. Um, he never had a chance to do that. They have an ironclad agreement, uh, the Tigers and the Lions, that the Lions was the only team that uh, football team that could play there. They were going to play there in '74. And then in 75, they were going to move to Pontiac, but the the lease still was in effect for 75 and then also for 76, a year after they left Detroit. So the, the earliest the wheels could have gotten in the Tiger Stadium was 77. And uh, But Coleman Young talked Davidson into doing it uh, and, and including Detroit, and they wound up out at Ypsil- Ypsilanti, Michigan, which was where uh, Eastern Michigan was, University. Um, about, what was it? About 35, 40 miles from Detroit. Yeah. Not an easy place to get to just out in the middle of nowhere, tiny stadium. They had to add some seats just to get up to even minor league, um, uh, standards. And and that just didn't help them at all. Um, by being out there, they called them the gypsy gypsies because they were moving, they were out in Ypsilanti. (laughs) So, um, it, it just, it just wasn't a very good, uh, very good situation from the start. Mm-hmm. Now, now we're going to get into ownership in in just a bit because obviously ownership is is an incredible story. But before we get there, I wanted to talk first about Lewis Lee, who was named the team president. And what was cool about Lewis Lee is that he is the first African American in the history 
of a major professional sports franchise to be given the keys if you want to call a team in the in the WFL a major professional sports franchise. But Lewis Lee was given the keys to the team. How important was that? And again, a name here, I, I hope I pronounce it correctly, Sonny Grandalis was named the GM. Where did he come from and what qualifications did he have to be named GM? Well, he had, he had played uh, he had played college ball. He was very good in college. He uh, went into the pros, but I, I think he had a knee injury that kind of curtailed that career. So he coached for a while. He was a scout. Um, he was both in Canada and in the NFL. Um, and, I mean, he was he wasn't really the weakest link of the whole bunch. I mean, you could really say that Sonny knew his football, um, but he was just kind of, you know, hamstrung by the fact that the team had no money. And you, and you touch on a good point, Warren, is that, you know, the wheels for all their foibles and all the problems they had and all the issues and all the things that happened, you got to remember is that, and the WFL as a whole, they had minority ownership the first time, like you said, in, in pro sports. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the a lot of the investors in the wheels were minority you know, uh, folks, minority businessmen, minority businesswomen. They had uh, Esther Edwards, who was the uh, vice president of Motown Records. Mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye was an investor in the team. Um, so that was the thing that I don't think should be really forgotten is that um, – you know, these teams, and I think Florida had a, had a minority owner with Robbie Loud. Um, you know, this kind of thing shouldn't be forgotten that they, you know, they gave these people a chance. They gave the minorities a chance to be owners, to be to be players. They had more, I think it was like triple the number of uh, African-American quarterbacks than the NFL did. Um, so they gave jobs to people that, you know, may not have gotten them otherwise. But yeah, the, the one thing about the ownership as you know, as as poorly as it turned out, they did have a lot of minority owners in, in that group that ran the, the wheels. And one of them was Lewis Lee, who had played at Michigan, um, had done some work. Um, I believe he was kind of uh, um, somehow associated with Coleman Young, and I think that's how he got his position there um, because he had worked with Coleman Young. And I think in his campaign and a couple other campaigns uh, in the city. Um, and I think that's how he got his job. But he played at Michigan. He he was a football player. He knew football. So, uh, but he, like you said, he did get the keys to it. He was the president and the first one, uh, first minority president in uh, pro sports. Pretty cool. But <laughs> if you're gonna be if you're gonna be the first president of a team, you certainly want to be the president of a team that can actually sign some players. And and like you just said moments ago. Um, this team didn't have a whole lot of money, if any. So what were Lee and Grandilis doing to to build a a team here in the early going? They couldn't sign any players. Yeah, they, they really had a they really had a tough time with, with the college draft. Um I believe they signed about half a dozen out of thirty three draft picks. Um, they drafted two tall Jones in the first round. He, of course, went to the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't going to sign him because they weren't going to buck up against the Cowboys and as much money as they could have offered. Uh, because and then, then they tried to get uh, two talls coach from uh, college, um, uh, John Merritt uh, from Tennessee State, 
to get him to get him to be the coach. And again, another minority um, um, presence. If he would have been, uh, would have been the first uh, black head coach in football since I think the 1920s. Mm-hmm. They try to get him as a package deal to get too tall. Um, that didn't work out because uh, Merritt came up, took a look at uh, the situation, and said it was just crazy. They weren't offering him enough money. Um, there was just too many uh, too many cooks that were spoiling the broth, as the old saying goes. And uh, he just uh, he didn't like the situation, so he uh, pretty much took off, uh, turned down a job. Um, yeah, the, and then the pro draft, they signed some of those. They, each team had a pro draft where they drafted pro players from the NFL. Uh, they managed to sign some of those guys, not a whole lot. Um, again, just because of the fact they didn't have any money, at first they were going to, offer everybody no more than $10,000 a year. And I think the rookies in the NFL are in about twice that. <laughs> so, um, you know, you know, you're not going to get anybody assigned for $10,000, but they finally did up that a little bit, mm-hmm. but they really didn't have any money because as they, you know, when they went to court later, you know, they still owed the lead 625,000 on their entry fee, which was 800,000. So they really only put in like 175,000, into the team to begin with. And if you take, they had, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more. They had 33 owners. And I think right. it turns out that they, 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 they would have put in like $5,000 each, Jeez. you know? So, I mean, it's just, it was just a bunch of people who really didn't know, know how to run a football team, you know? So that was really their big problem. Plus they didn't have any money. Plus, as you mentioned, grand Grandelius, um, every other or WFL team, excuse me, signed these future contracts, you know, Stabler, Curly Culp, um, you know, Bill Berge, um, you know, to, to kind of make a splash with the public. And Gorandelia said, no, I can't, I'm not going to sign any. They were the only team that didn't sign anybody to a future contract. Every other team did. And, you know, because of that, they didn't really get any kind of interest started, you know, publicity uh, wise, you know, as far as kind of a, you know, to kind of spark interest in the team to say, hey, boy, they got these guys coming here next year. Maybe I'll go out and see this team, you know? So, you know, with very little as far as talent, um, they just didn't have it as far as the uh, as far as the public. You know, they just didn't get off to a very good start as far as trying to sign players, and that really hurt them uh, down the line. Sure, nothing nothing in the press, uh, nothing, nothing to write about. But one thing they did do, and and thank you for letting me know how to pronounce it, Sonny Grandelius and Lewis Lee, they had to go out and hire a coach. So they went out and they hired Dan Boister. So how bad a move did that prove to be? As he was a college coach without any professional experience. And then instead of hiring people to help him with the professional game, he went out and hired other college coaches to be his assistants. How much did that ultimately affect the team when it came to strategy, game management, how to coach professionals, the rules, etc.? In retrospect, how bad a hire was that? Yeah, I think that was, I mean, he, he seemed like a nice guy. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't really know him, but he seemed like a decent man. But like you said, he had absolutely no pro experience. And at the time, that was the big thing in the NFL. You had John Ralston at Denver. You had uh, Don Coriel. But like you said, they hired 
assistants that had NFL experience to kind of guide them through that process of transitioning from the college game to the pro game because it is a big transition. And instead, Boyster, like you said, the only I think he had one coach, Owen Dejanovich, who had like a couple of years of Canadian League experience, but the other guys were just um, just college guys. So you had a college guy leading college guys to try to run a pro, uh, you know, franchise. And you know, uh, the one player um, said that he was just so ticked off because if they were leading late in the game, they wouldn't go into a pre-fence defense. They would just stay in a man for man and they get beat by a bomb or mm-hmm. a long pass. Mm-hmm. And it happened, you know, they well, they finished one and 13 and I think they lost like six or seven games in the last minute. Yeah. You, 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 you wrote a lot about right. that throughout the entire book. One theme was that they were in a lot of these games until the very end, but they just couldn't, uh, uh, score a final point to beat a team or they got beat towards the end. Yeah, right. I mean, and again, it was that lack of of familiarity with the pro game that really hurt the the, uh, the strategy. Um, you know, like I said, they, they wouldn't go into a prevent defense. Um, you know, they, they were in so many games where they lost by a point or two points or, you know, or, or a touchdown. And they could have easily been, you know, seven and seven instead of one in 13, but it's just the idea they didn't make adjustments at halftime. Like so many coaches do, you know, they, they're watching, you know, watching the game and they're saying, okay, they're doing this. We've got to do this to counteract that. They just never did that. There was no, you know, um, at the halftime was just, okay, let's just keep trying. Let's just keep working at it instead of actually making adjustments and saying, we've got to do this. We've got to change this defense. Let's, you know, drop a linebacker back in, in pass defense or whatever it might have been. It was just none of that occurred because of that lack of familiarity with the pro game. It really hurt them. And, you know, the players tried. The players worked hard, uh, you know, as as far as, you know, especially for guys that weren't getting paid, guys that, you know, for weeks on end went out with, without pay um, and they just hung in there. They played their hearts out, but they just were kind of hamstrung by their, their coaching staff um, because they just, you know, they, they didn't have the right makeup and the right tools to give the players so they could be successful. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give Boister this much credit. I don't know how anyone can work for a business that has 33 owners and survive, but somehow he did survive. At least he, he survived, the 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 season that that the wheels were in existence or the part of the season that the wheels were in existence 33 owners yep. and none with football experience that pretty much sums it all up doesn't it running a football team is not like running a business and you had 33 people from all walks of life with different business backgrounds running this team. What gives? Well, I tell you, it was just, you know, the old, the old saying too many cooks spoil the broth and that was it. And you know, this, the 33 owners kind of got to be a catchphrase, you know, in a WFL and WFL had all the crazy stories with, you know, Philadelphia with a papergate scandal and they papered the house and New York playing on Randall's Island, you know, and Downing Stadium and, and Detroit's was they had 33 owners. 
And it was kind of the running gag about the franchise was that how can you run a team with 33 owners? And I think I mentioned it late in the book, you know, what, what the real problem was, was that you had 33 investors, you know, every, every pro team, mm-hmm. pro football, hockey, basketball, whatever, had, you know, minority stockholders, minority owners, investors, whatever you want to call them. But at the top, they had that one person, whoever it was, that was a strong leader who made those decisions. And you know, the no Oakland one. Raiders, yeah. the Oakland Raiders have investors, minority owners, whatever, but the, the, the guy who ran that ship was Al Davis. You knew who, who mm-hmm. was going to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, they had these 33 investors and none of them strong enough to actually go in there and say, okay, I'm going to make the decision. We're going to do this. And instead it was kind of like their meetings kind of devolved into, okay, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? And for weeks and months at a time, nothing was done. They'd have with these weekly meetings where nothing was accomplished. Nothing was decided on because they were just, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? And nobody really (laughs) was there saying, Daggone it, we're going to do this. This is what we're going to do. So players went without getting paid. The staff went without getting paid. And, you know, they didn't sign enough, you know, players. They didn't have the money to sign the players. Um, as I mentioned her before, Esther Edwards, who was the, the vice president of Motown, she kind of took over for a while before the season started and kind of started really focusing her energy on the team. And it really started to stabilize while she was in that position because, again, you need that strong central figure to kind of run things and she kind of took over and things kind of straightened out. But because she's running, basically running Motown, which was like a giant at the time as a juggernaut with Stevie wonder, Marvin Gaye, you know, and all the, the groups that she was trying to run that business. She just didn't have the time to, to devote to it. Like she, you know, she probably wanted to. So again, you just had that vacuum, that power vacuum at the head of the, of the group that just didn't have, the, you know, the, the strength or the, uh, you know, the wherewithal to say, okay, this is what we're doing. We're going to mm-hmm. do this. We're going to do this. We're going to sign this player. We're going to, you know, pay these guys. We're going to get money, whatever, you know, and it was just, that's what really hurt them. Besides the fact that it just looks silly to have 33 owners, you know, <laughs> it's just, I mean, you know, again, that just became the catchphrase and kind of the running gag of the whole franchise was that, you know, You've got these 33 people and none of them can make a decision. So well, it well, one really thing, hurt the team. One thing they could agree on or they did agree on was not put any money into the team. I mean, it's crazy. It was basically a pay-as-you-go franchise. And like you said, they were the only team that failed to sign any player from the NFL to a futures contract. They had trouble signing players. So ultimately, where did the wheels turn for players? And in the end, they looked at a lot of them before their first game, something like 160 or 170 players. Maybe the number, I think, was 163. Where did they go to get their players, and how did they convince them to sign contracts? Well, the the, the first year, they had that, that – the tryouts you're talking about was, you know, before the season, cause they're not hiring. They're not, they're not signing anybody and they're getting desperate. They're like, everybody else is signing players left and right. And because of the fact they were trying to be too chintzy and kind of cheap, you know, as first, like I said, as at first trying to sign guys for $10,000 a year, nobody wanted to sign. So they had this open tryout. And like you said, a, a ton of, 
men showed up, um, all kind of guys, all different shapes and sizes. And I think they wound up with like two guys that made it even to just a training camp. None of them, I don't think any of them made it to the actual team. Two guys made it to the training camp. And it was just the idea that, you know, they, they didn't want to pay money. They, they finally did up their, their ante a little bit. They, they, they did sign a few players, but, you know, then they had a bunch of injuries. You know, they're getting NFL cuts, what they can. They're going up to the Canadian League to sign guys, uh, minor leaguers, that kind of thing. Um, and, again, that just hurt them in the, in the long run, too, because with, with the injury, they didn't have the depth and they didn't have the, the talent that, was, that they could utilize to try to be a competitive team and it just hurt them in the long run to, uh, you know, as far as, you know, like we've talked about that the lack of money, the lack of, of signing players, the lack of, of looking ahead, um, the, the owners, not, you know, like you said, they, they paid bills as they came up, almost like a club football team. Um, you know, they didn't pay their bill at the, at the training camp. Um, you know, they didn't pay their bills along the way, you know, you know, as everybody else does, they were just like, okay, okay, here's a few bucks. Uh, here's a few bucks to kind of tie you over, that kind of thing. And they just had all these uh, predators that they had listed in court when they were going to court later in the season. It was just a, an amazing number of, of predators they had that they owed money to. So, um, One of the places they did find some players was a, a minor league circuit, a, a semi-pro ball. You spoke a lot about that in the book, semi-pro leagues or small pro leagues. There appeared to be a lot of them. Can you talk about that type of circuit back in the day? And are there such leagues today? And if so, can you tell us anything about them? My brother was a kicker at Northeastern University, and um, he wanted to try to get into the pros. He never made it, but he played on some semi-pro teams. What was that like, Is and does that still exist today? It was it was huge back in the 60s and 70s, early, about, or about the mid-70s. Minor league football was huge in the country, you know, and it was all over the country. And, you know, just because of the popularity of football, every, every town wanted a team. And, uh, you know, they had, it wasn't quite like baseball where you had like the, the contracts with a, an affiliation with like the Dodgers would have a team in Albuquerque or, or wherever it was, or whoever it was, they'd have like an actual team that would feed them talent. It was just kind of like unofficial, um, affiliations in the NFL with, you know, uh, I think the Eagles had a, a team, the uh, Pottstown Firebirds. Um, you know, they just had teams that, you know, they would give them old uniforms, um, let it, you know, if they put a play on the taxi squad, they let them get on there and play on the weekends um, just to keep them fresh, keep them sharp. Um, it mm-hmm. kind of petered out a little bit, but there's still, there's still a semi-pro team in central Pennsylvania. I wrote a book about the, a team from the 70s that were a semi-pro team, and now they have a new team there in the same area, and they want to honor the guys that I wrote the book about. And we're trying to get a, it's like a 40th uh, reunion to have them come back and, and, and be like an appreciation night for the team at this new, new um, semi-pro team that's in the area in central Pennsylvania. So, I mean, there's still teams out there. It's not quite as big as it was. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot of guys that come out of college every year that, you know, don't go in the NFL or the CFL. And, uh, you know, they want to still play. and I think up here in, in uh, Corning, New York, um, I don't know, probably about 20 years ago, they had a, 
a team called the Dragons, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, that was up in the air as a semi-pro team. So, yeah, I mean, they're still around. Um, I'm not sure how much they get as far as, uh, you know, as notoriety. You know, there, there's so many books written about the old semi-pro teams, you know, with King Cochran at the at the Pottstown Firebirds and, and that kind of thing. So, but and they got kind of famous. I mean, there's a book out about the, all the semi-pro teams are in Connecticut. That was very good. So yeah, so I mean, it's it's not as big as it was, but there's still teams out there. They still, you know, there's still guys that yeah, okay, we we'll have a little small team here that you know get some guys, local guys from high schools or or colleges from the area, and and we'll still play. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not quite as widespread, I don't think, as it was, but uh, it's still out there. Mm-hmm. So back to the wheels, they they have owners, thirty three of them. They have a team president, they have a GM, they have a coach, they're starting to sign players, and things are starting to come together, and it's time to begin assembling a team and learning the systems. It's time for training camp. How ridiculous was ownership when it came to training camp? One of the owners, in a money-saving move, suggested one of the craziest things I've ever heard of for a professional football team in regards to accommodations. Would you care to explain? <laughs> oh, it was. I mean, I, I hear the laugh in your voice, and I can understand why, because it was. It, it, you know, they, 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 they talk a lot about the old AFL and the stuff they went through, and they said, we never did anything like that. We never went with that bad. <laughs> and yeah, this, they're they're talking about you know again the owners are sitting around with uh, Sonny Grandelius and he's he's talking about where we're we going to have training camp, where we're we going to you know hold training camp. Usually, you know as you know, um, it's usually a local college, small college. They'll offer their 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 you know facilities up for a team to to use. I know that you know up here for the Bills, they were at um, you know a couple of colleges. Ithaca, I think they had them for a while, and they were. In, couple of small colleges up near Buffalo. And, you know, that's how they do it. Well, this one owner stood up and said, you know, hey, why don't we have them housed in tents on Bell Island, which was like a publicly owned. And, you know, they can they can live out in tents and they can have a blast. They have a great time. And then Grandelius just looked at the guy and said, OK, how are we going to feed them? How are they going to shave? How are they going to eat? How are they going to, you know, shower? Oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> so, you know, it was just, it's its probably one of the craziest stories to come out of that league. And maybe in, in pro football history is that story is that, you know, they wanted to, you know, they took the idea of camp. And, you know, when they looked at training camp, they took the idea of camp a little bit too far and said, oh, let's have them camp out. And it's like, it just shows the, the I don't want to say ignorance, but just the inexperience they had as far as knowing what was required of a football team and what was required to run a football team, you know, to try to save money. Oh yeah. We'll just save money. Just have them, you know, living in tents on, a, you know, on, on Bell Island. And it was just, yeah, okay. You know, that's not going to work. And, you know, I, I don't know which one it was. They never really identified them. I've never seen their name in, in, in print anywhere. And I've looked it up. I've tried to find which one it was probably too embarrassed. They probably, 
said, please don't tell me. Don't don't tell anybody that was me. At least I hope that's what it was. But <laughs> it's just amazing that they actually thought that was a good idea. So, you know, crazy. it was fine. Yeah, I mean, that was, like I said, there were a lot of crazy stories that came out of the WFL. I think that might have been the craziest one. Um, it showed, like I said, just a lack of experience and a lack of, of know-how about what, a, what it takes to run a professional football team. And they also had a couple of crazy players with them uh, that went, you know, went to camp. Some made the team, some didn't. And later on, they signed players. They got rid of players. I'm going to mention a couple of names to you. And and like I said, some of these people might not have made the team or they at least came to camp and some got through. Uh, tell me what you can. The first thing that comes to mind, um, Hubert LeVon Bryant. Yeah, good old Yubi. Yeah, he uh, he came into Detroit, um, and uh, he wasn't too bad of a player. He was from Pittsburgh. And he played for the uh, for them for a while, um, and he was a kind of a punt returner, a wide receiver. Um, but he was kind of a character. Uh, he liked to dry, dress up like in the Superfly outfits and that kind of thing. And, you know, he had Frenchie Fuqua back then, and all those guys at all. It was the seventies. Yeah, guys with the uh, with the uh, boots with the uh, heels on that were made out of glass with 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 goldfish in it. He had the like the 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 real tall red red boots and the super fly outfit with the capes and everything. And quite an interesting character. Not a bad receiver. Um, did pretty good. Uh, added, added, the, a little, the, added a little color to the team. Yes, all you could say that. Yes, definitely. You know, and uh, but yeah, he was he was an interesting guy. Uh, scored the first touchdown the team had. Made a great catch. I've seen it on a. I actually have a a copy of a Memphis Southman highlight reel from that year, and they show that catch. And it was actually a really good catch. I mean, he made a one-handed kind of, um, you know, just mm-hmm. off balance. And you know, he was a good receiver. Um, you know, he was fast, quick. Um, he had you know had some injuries, so he you know he was wasn't as uh, you know as uh, fast as he had been, but uh, you know he was a very interesting character, very mm-hmm. very much so. Oh yes. How about John Hansen? Some might know him as Stan Hansen. Yeah, yeah. At the time, he was John. He went by John, um, and he was a, a lineman uh, from uh, from Texas. Uh, tried out for the team, um, didn't make it. But while he was, uh, you know, in training camp with uh, with the Wheels, he was also wrestling, as uh, as his real name, Stan the Lariat Hanson. He was he was uh, I think mean, he's a wrestling Hall of Famer now. He was yep. in the wrestling game up up to the '90s, I believe, maybe even the 2000s. He wrestled for quite a long time. So yeah, I mean, you had that. He was again quite an interesting guy um, at the time. Too bad he didn't make the team. I would have been interested to see how he'd have done. Um, if nothing else, maybe he'd have been a little bit of an XFL presence before the <laughs> XFL actually in, actually was uh, was invented. So who knows? Um, you know, maybe used a lariat on some of the some of the opposing teams. Who knows? I bring up the name Jerry Lustig, a kicker who played for the Bills, and I bring him up because of one thing he tried to do after having a bad game. Can you talk about that? He sort of went for a walk. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he missed a field goal. I think it was against the Chargers when he was playing for the Bills and it lost a game for him. He decided to walk home uh, from the from War Memorial Stadium at the time. And he got a couple of guys 
you know, saw him, knew who he was, and kind of beat him up a little bit. And, uh, you know, they said, the cops said, you know, are you okay? Do you want to file any charges? He goes, no. If I was them, I would have beat myself up too because I shouldn't have missed that field goal. So. <laughs> but he, that, uh, that walk was quite long, something like oh, 65 yeah. miles he tried to walk home. Yeah, no, that was that. That was that one. Then from uh, what was that? That's when he played for Boston, the Boston Sweepers, I believe. And yeah, he uh, he he did something like that, and he actually tried to walk. I think somebody finally picked him up. I don't know how far of the sixty-five miles he made, but I think somebody finally picked him up. But yeah, that was another great story. He was quite an interesting guy too. Very interesting guy. Actually, he actually got into actually got signed by the Bills because he said he was his younger brother <laughs> instead of him because he was like older because he played minor league football, you know, so he had, he had played minor league football for a while. And he didn't think he'd be signed because he was catch, you know, nearing 30 at the time. So he said he was his brother. He, he used his brother's name instead, who was younger, a few years younger than him. And that's how the, he got signed by the Bills. So yeah, he was another interesting character, indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, well, d- the Detroit Wheels were filled with interesting characters, but one guy who who we should take a little serious. Um, he had a pretty good football pedigree, Bubba Weish. Tell us about Bubba uh, Weish. Yeah, Bubba was uh, Sam Weish's younger brother. We all remember Sam. He was a quarterback for a while with the Bengals. Back in the day, and then of course he came in and uh, went on to be a head coach. Where I remember him, I remember him was uh, I think it was he coaching uh, Cincinnati when yep. they were playing Cleveland. They were throwing stuff on the field. He goes, "You you live in Cincinnati? You're not from Cleveland or something like that." And, but anyway, that was that was his older brother Sam. Uh, but Bubba was uh, his real name was Joe. Uh, he played for the University of Tennessee. Was really good there. Uh, one of those guys had a knack for bringing a team back late in the game. Very good, you know, when the, when the crunch time, when, the, when he needed somebody to throw a touchdown pass late in the game. Um, he had kind of bounced around a little bit in the CFL. I don't think he ever made the NFL, um, but they signed him. He thought it'd be a great, uh, you know, great opportunity for him. And he really, really played his heart out. The poor guy, his knees were pretty bad. He was getting beat up. He got sacked more than any other quarterback in the WFL. He just had no no help around him. He could have sued his uh, teammates for non-support <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the running game was, was terrible. Um, you know, his offensive line wasn't all that great. And he was basically just running for his life every chance he, he dropped back to pass. And he really, really was courageous. I mean, a guy kind of turned around to be a, a spokesman for the team and, uh, you know, kind of tried to help the team. He, he sent letters to Gary Davidson. You got to help us out. We're not, you know, we're, we have no money. Um, so yeah, he was, he was really kind of inspirational, really. I mean, the guy, like I said, he really had a tough time. He had, you know, he brought him down to a couple of games where he threw a touchdown pass late. Now one of won the game has instead, you know, as we talked about earlier, the defense let them down and let the other team score even less time on the clock. So I mean, try as hard as Bubba did, he just couldn't couldn't get him over the hump in a lot of games, and it really wasn't his fault. It was really a lot of just the idea of defensive breakdowns mm-hmm. due again, as we talked earlier, to the lack of uh, professional coaching. Let's turn to some game action. You know, the Wheels won their two. 
I guess we would call them unofficial controlled scrimmages against the Chicago Fire. And it gave them a lot of confidence, but they had no clue what they were up against. Their first game ever came against the Memphis Southmen. They were a pretty confident team, too. What happened? Well, you know, they, they came into that game. Memphis, you know, one of the better franchises in the league, um, you know, run by John Bassett, who went on to own uh, Tampa Bay in uh, USFL. Um, you know, yeah, they won those two games. They were kind of controlled scrimmages. I don't think they gave up any any points at all in either one of those games. Yeah, it gave them a full um, sense of confidence. They, uh, you know, you yeah. almost have to think that uh, 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 the fire played possum with them. Yeah, probably, you know, they, I'm sure they didn't want to give away all their secrets and give away all their game plans and, and show what they really, uh, you know, really could do. So I'm sure they probably just kind of lulled them to sleep a little bit. Like you said, I think he gave them a, a false sense of confidence to the, uh, to the wheels uh, and to the coaching staff. But thought, oh, hey, we're great. Look at this. We won two games here, or at least scrimmages. And, uh, but yeah, they went into the game in Memphis. Um, they fell behind a lot of turnovers. Um, it was a pretty good crowd there at, at Memphis, but yeah, they, they, um, they fell behind, uh, they got the touchdown from UB Bryant and the, and the great catch. Um, but, uh, you know, they just, uh, they had a lot of turnovers and that played the team pretty much through the whole season. They just didn't play well together. Um, they were one of those teams that just didn't, you know, they had a lot of turnover with, in, with injuries and that kind of thing. Just didn't have time to get a real good game plan that where guys could learn the game plan. And by the time they did, they were injured or they were cut or whatever it was. And uh, so, yeah, um, Memphis gave them a pretty good beating. It was 35, 34-15, I think it was. Yep. So that got that got off to a pretty bad start. So one of the other things you had written about was the fact that there were so many players coming and going. And some of this was because Boyster didn't want the player anymore. You know, he didn't like him, didn't think he could cut it. Then he'd bring in somebody else. And, and – you know, face it, Detroit ended up with a lot of injuries as well. How bad did it get? And how did the continual rotating door affect the team and its performance? They could never get any continuity. No, exactly. I mean, you know, you had, I think they went through something like 10 linebackers. I mean, they just, guys were just, you know, tearing up their knees left and right or their shoulders or whatever. And, you know, because of that, you just had guys coming and going, you know, uh, the defensive backs, they went through a lot of defensive backs, not only because of injuries, but because the guys just weren't, you know, weren't playing up to, you know, standards as far as professionals. So, you know, you had guys that would come and go. You didn't have anybody that would have any continuity where you could, you know, get some team teamwork, get some, uh, you know, um, get, you know, in sync uh, to be able to play together. And they just kind of, you know, just, you know, again, had that turnover and it just didn't help them at all. Um, you know, they had the one guy, Sam Britzer, they tried to sign from the Canadian League. They mm-hmm. couldn't pay him his, his money. They had to give him back. Um, but, you know, just a ton of injuries. Not only that, they went through a lot of receivers. They went through a lot of running backs. Um, you know, Weish himself, his both his knees were bad. Um, he was just hobbling along. But he tried to stay in there and, uh, you know, um, it was just it was just a bad situation because of the fact that, you know, without the coaching, without the guys that could build that teamwork and that rapport and that 
that continuity with you know within the team that they could play together for a, any length of time. Um, they were either getting injured or they're getting cut or just left the team. Um, you know, just saying, "Oh, I've had enough of this." So mm-hmm. yeah, it was just mm-hmm. it was just too much of that. Mm-hmm. So game two, it wasn't much better. I mean, they only lost eighteen to fourteen to to Florida. Right. Um, but Detroit was playing its first game at home, and it the, the wheels had somewhat of a revamped lineup. Um, so they were a little more competitive, but it was still embarrassing, not because of the score. Hardly anyone showed up. And, you know, we sort of talked about this earlier, that the stadium was so far out of town, uh, up in Ypsilanti, and they were expecting close to 20,000 fans. And in order to accommodate those fans, they brought in portable bleachers. Now, let's see. One set of bleachers sat seven people. Only seven fans sat in those bleachers. Another set of bleachers had three fans in it. And in one set of bleachers, as you wrote, it had one lonely fan. Not exactly (laughs) a great showing. Ownership, players, the league. No one could have been happy. I mean, this embarrassing, I don't even know if that covers what really happened. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I think it was a little over 10,000. I think they, I think it was at the time, I think it was the smallest crowd they'd had in the league. Um, and a lot of the problem was the fact that the newspapers, one newspaper said well, the game started at 830. Another newspaper said it started at 730. Um, the, the ticket guy was saying, oh, we're going to have a sellout. So a lot of the fans said, well, there's no reason for me to go out there. It's sold out. I'm not going to drive out. So they didn't. So they wound up with 10,000 people. And then they had, as it turns out, they have a, a big hill next to the stadium where you can look down into the stadium. And about 5,000 people just sat up there on the, on the, on the hill, watched the game for free. So you've got, you, you could have gotten maybe if, if, if you don't play it right, you got 15,000, which isn't great, but better than 10,000. But, you know, they're saying, Oh, we're going to have to do something about this. And I don't think they ever did. I think they always had people on that hill. Um, and you know, the people figured, why do I have to pay when I can watch it for free on the hill? And, bring my uh, picnic basket and some wine and cheese and sit and enjoy a football game in the summertime. And, you know, why should I pay for a ticket when I can watch it for free? So it was just, you know, a lot of things, a lot of factors going into it that really was against the team. Um, And that that was, you know, the idea of, you know, again, just not being able to draw fans again. And that was a lot of it being out that, you know, out there in the hinterlands, as they say, Um, you know, I don't know if they'd have done any better in, in Tiger Stadium. I don't think they could have done worse, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I do believe they could have done a little bit better if they could have at least gotten, you know, a few games there. But, yeah, being out there and, and, and just, you know, it, just, it hurt them. They didn't have the, you know, and again, they didn't know they had all these bills they had to pay <laughs> on top of, you know, on top of everything else, on the top of the players and the staff and the personnel and the front office and what have you. And, and, you know, it was just, it was just a really, really bad situation. And that's just, that's what got me to write the book was just that, you know, just all these stories, all these different things that, 
could have gone wrong. It was like Murphy's Law. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong for that team. It was just amazing. Including the schedule, oh. because their third game was played just days later. If the NFL thinks playing a game on Sunday and following that game up with a Thursday game is crazy, how about playing a game on Sunday or Saturday in Detroit, getting on a plane and flying to Hawaii to play the team in Hawaii. Once again, Detroit loses. They completely implode in the fourth quarter. Uh, The final score was 36 to 16. But to have to finish your game here and then fly to Hawaii to play is crazy. Who thought of that schedule? Well, the problem was that the Lions said, we're not going to play midweek football. It's not going to draw. We have to play on Sunday. So when the season started, everybody was playing on either Wednesday or Thursday, and the Lions insisted on playing on Sunday. So, yeah, the wheels had to, they had that game against Florida. It was a Wednesday. They had to basically, I think they had, I don't even know if they had to pay off. They had to get in the, on the plane, fly out to Honolulu to play on Sunday. And, you know, they were just beat. Like you said, they pretty much imploded in the fourth quarter. I think they had a lead at one point, but they just, you know, couldn't hold the lead. Defense couldn't hold them. Um, and they wound up losing by 20 points. And it was just, you know, and it was kind of, kind of like in the middle of the season there when they had right around uh, Labor Day, they got the great idea that they had to get all these 20 games in, in so many weeks. So around Labor Day, they all the teams played like four games in like 10 days. And it was just crazy. And the players would say, it's not only, not only, you know, you're, you're still tired from the last game and you're still beat up and you're still, you know, just dragging. It's also, you just don't have time to prepare. You don't have time to watch film. You don't have time to practice. You don't have time to, you know, get ready for that next opponent. And that's what happened to them here in this game against Hawaii. And then Hawaii finally decided, okay, yeah, we're not going to draw on Sundays either. So we might as well join the rest of the teams and play on Wednesday or Thursday because (laughs) we're not drawing on Sunday either. And the problem with that was they would actually show the game, and it could have been on tape, you know, tape delay, but they still showed the game on TV. So a lot of fans, again, kind of like the Hill situation there in Detroit, why pay to go out to the game when I can sit here in my warmth of my, you know, or uh-huh. air conditioning uh-huh. as it would be in Hawaii and watch the game for free on TV instead of going out to the game. Mm-hmm. So it was just, mm-hmm. again, just bad decisions, poorly run. And, you know, it, you know, the players were the ones that really suffered for it. it was, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the, the owners and the and the coaches just didn't have the, the wherewithal and the knowledge and the, uh, you know, the foresight to be able to run a pro football team. And the players were the ones that really suffered for it. Mm-hmm. Just three games in, they're 0-3, and the team's survival starts to become a question mark. So we've discussed the fact that the team had 33 owners and some financial issues, but those financial issues really started to show up as the season progressed. Tell us where ownership started to cut corners in order to keep a team on the field and even maybe even more so, did they care? Did ownership really care if the team won or lost? 
Do they just want out? Again, explain ownership. Why did the WFL agree to such an insane scenario? Yeah, I, I really think it was Coleman Young who really convinced Gary Davidson to, to put a team there that he could get Tiger Stadium. Um, yeah, they just, they started to, you know, and again, they just had no idea what they were doing from week to week. They're just paying bills as, as they came up, if they could. A lot of them they didn't pay. Um, the owners, and I, you know, you, you see like a guy like Jerry Jones, as much as kind of annoying as he can be, the guy wants to win. He wants to win football games. You know, mm-hmm. he wants to mm-hmm. he wants to win. Al Davis wanted to win. You've got these owners who want to win, who are in it to win. Um, they will put the best product they can on the field, no matter what. And I don't think I think the the Detroit owners really thought that they were going to get in on the ground floor, and then they were going to sell this team, and they were going to make a lot of money. And and of course, never turned out because nobody wanted to. They they had a couple of feelers. Um, Upton Bell, who wound up uh, buying a New York team and moving it to Charlotte, mm-hmm. he looked at Detroit first. Um, he had been in the NFL for a while. He was a Bird Bell son, who was a former commissioner, um, had been uh, with the Patriots uh, before that. Um, he uh, wanted to buy the team, um, but he just kind of looked at the situation. Um, you know, he just knew that they had so many bills. It was like a mountain of bills that they, you know, they had, and he wound up you know, buying New York instead. Um, and then he had uh, John DeLorean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, who, uh, who designed the, the DeLorean car. Um, and it's from uh, Back in the Future. And he used one in that movie. Um, and he, he made inroads about buying the team and keeping it in Detroit. Whereas uh, Bell, he wanted to move the team to Charlotte. Um, but um, he, uh, you know, DeLorean kind of looked at the situation again. Um, how many, how much, uh, you know, debt he was going to try to have to deal with. And I think just like Bell, he just said, you know, I'm not dealing with this. This is, this is way, and I don't want to go in way over my head. And again, they just, you know, from week to week, just kind of made it, <laughs> um, <laughs> just, you know, just, you know, week to week. And it was just a, a bad situation. And I, I don't think they really were interested in football. Yeah, that's that's kind of owners. That, that, you know, that's sort of like what it sounds like. It was a cool thing to say, I own a football team, or I'm a part owner of a football team. But that's as that's right. as far as the cool got. <laughs> yes, the cool got kind of hot for a while, so it was it wasn't a cool thing not to own a Detroit Wheels anyway. Yeah. Hey, you know, we could go through the season game by game, but we'd never get through the show. And, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd give away everything in your book, which, by the way, everyone listening, it is a really good book, really goes in depth, nothing but a brand new set of flat tires. The sad, sorry saga of the 1974 Detroit Wheels of the World Football League by my guest today, Mark Speck. So, Mark, we could, like I say, go through this week by week, but we're not. What we will do, however, is talk about this. Detroit lost its first 10 games. They're 0-10, and they finally win a game and it's a shocker a 15 to 14 win in orlando 
against the Florida Blazers. How shocking was this? What happened? Well, I mean, it was because the Blazers were in first place in the East, a very solid team that would go on to to, to go into the World Bowl. Very good team. Um, I don't know if it was the, just the, 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 the stars alighted that night or whatever it was, but um, it was one of those games where they did score late, um, and they actually managed to hold them. Um, Florida had one last chance to score. They went down the field. They actually got an extra down. The referees lost count of the downs. They even had an extra down, but they still couldn't score. I think um, Terry Huffner uh, intercepted the pass at the end of the game, and they finally won a game. It was like you know, they won the Super Bowl. It was amazing because, like you said, they lost their first 10 games. They didn't think they were going to win a game. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, a lot of those games were lost late, you know, by very small margins. But they finally managed to beat um, Florida. And I think one of the guys that had been traded to Detroit uh, from Florida, um, his name escapes me right now. I could probably probably come up with it. But he mm-hmm. had... He had he was one of those guys that he figured out what was, he had learned some, some tricks from Jack party, the, the coach of Florida, mm-hmm. and he used them against Florida. And, and by um, the way, and by the way, Florida was a struggling team financially as well. Were they not? Oh yes. Yes, they were too. And I, you know, I've got a book about them and a dollar short about the Blazers, which was another great story because unlike Detroit, where they had all these problems, the, the Blazers continued to win which to me is even more amazing than, you know, the, the wheels, you know, they, they didn't have any money. They didn't have any good coaching. They didn't have good ownership, but they, you know, they lost games. Whereas Florida, like I said, got all the way to the road bowl, just barely lost to Birmingham. So, but yeah, they had money problems as well. And they just, you know, again, they, I don't think they got paid the last 13 weeks of the season. <laughs> so it was just awful. Yeah. It was just awful. It was just, again, just these stories, you know, it's great to talk about, yeah, he threw the, you know, the, the down and out pass at this time and they, they, they called the right call this time and that's all well and good. And that's a part of it, but the background stories of this league were just amazing that the hardships these players put up with week after week after week, you know, that, you know, they couldn't pay their electric bill there. They had to, they couldn't pay their news, the, the newspaper delivery boy. And, you know, Jack Pardee's, I mean, not to go off the subject too much, but Jack Pardee's wife went into a um, a store to buy groceries, and the manager of the store followed her home and took the groceries back away from her because he didn't trust the check that she'd written for him. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, oh, just you, know, you know, just that kind of thing, just the stuff that they put up with. You know, and the wheels did the same thing, They, you know, and... I, I don't think it was so much, again, the players. They didn't have a lot of talent, but the talent they had, they tried as best they could. They just didn't have a lot of tools to work with. Their ownership pretty much had abandoned them. They didn't know what they were doing. Uh, the, the coaches, again, like we discussed earlier, were all college coaches who didn't know the pro game, didn't know what it took to, to be a good pro coach, to, to coach a pro football team. And the players were just sabotaging at every, at every turn. And, and instead of at least being only a, a modicum of success, like I said, they could have been easily seven and seven. They wound up one and thirteen because, again, they just didn't have that 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 back backing from the owners, that backing from the coaching staff, 
and the public, you know, it kind of gets depressing when you're playing before, you know, 10, eight, 10,000 people, um, you know, every week. And, uh, you know, where other teams you go to like Birmingham or something, there's 35,000 people mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Memphis, there's 35,000, you know, Southern California has got, you know, 30, 25, 30,000. Mm-hmm. It's just crowds they can dream of, you know, and, you know, that's got to be depressing. I mean, they tried to say that it wasn't, but I'm sure it was, you know, you, they went sure. into the one game where they, they played, uh, I think it was Southern California there, Detroit. And I think they wound up with like 2,500 people or something like wow, that. Wow, for like, a professional no... football game. Yeah, and they said the crowd was around 6,000, but the players all said there was no way there was that many people in the stands. Wow. You know, there was no crowd noise. There's nobody behind you. There's nobody to get behind you. So, you know, on top of everything else, that just made the situation worse. So they win that they 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 win their first game. They beat Florida. Uh, it ends up being their only win. They win it fifteen to fourteen, and the rumors started to build. The team didn't have any money. No one wanted the team. The owners wouldn't or couldn't pour any more money into the team. There was. There were some that had hope new ownership would come in and move the team midseason to Carolina or Louisville. As you said, John DeLorean, he was going to buy the team. There was so much going on. So a couple of questions here. First, talk about the bankruptcy. The team is bankrupt and keeps playing. Yeah, you know, it was on September 24th. They filed for bankruptcy protection. Um, you know, the creditors, they packed up. The courtroom, all these creditors they had, and one of the players said, "You know, if we had crowds like this on our games, we'd be doing pretty good." <laughs> you know, here we got these, we got this courtroom full of people who are asking for money, and we can't pay them. And if we had to hand them out at the games, we probably wouldn't be in bankruptcy right now. So yeah, they they finally just said, you know, we 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 can't, you know, we can't incur all these losses, um, you know, and nobody wanted them like you like you said, their Delorean said thought better of it Upton Bell thought better of it um they just didn't have um you know anybody who wanted them nobody on the ownership I think a couple of them wanted to take over as far as owners but they wanted to move the team like you said you mentioned Louisville there was um a couple other places I think there was Little Rock Arkansas I'm not sure I I mean you're talking some really small markets by this time to try to get Mm -hmm. this team Mm-hmm. You know, and, but, you know, they, they, they talked about all these different towns they were going to move to, um, nothing ever came of. And again, that idea of not having that strong central figure, that guy or that woman uh, to make those decisions to say, okay, we're going to do this. We're moving to Louisville. We've got a stadium. We're moving there now. This is not working out here. And instead, they just kept just, for lack of a better term, if excuse the pun, spun their wheels every week because, you know, the, the, the investors, these 33 investors just, you know, were just, they couldn't make a decision. They just couldn't decide what they wanted to do, what was the best for the team. And it just, the team suffered. Um, and it just kept, you know, every week would have meetings. No, nothing was decided. No, we didn't make any decisions. And it was just ridiculous how that, that worked out. They finally filed for bankruptcy. The league tried to keep them going for a while. They didn't put any money into them, mm-hmm. but they, they kept the team open and in business. 
they're thinking maybe they're going to move or something. They were they're talking about I think Shreveport. Um, but somebody else moved to Shreveport. Yeah, the Houston did before. This was this was before that. It was like, but they yeah they were talking about that. There was some lumber baron down there in in, uh, um, in Shreveport that was going to buy the team. He was going to hire Terry Bradshaw, sign him away from the Steelers, hire the coach from uh, LSU. Of course, that never came. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it was all these all these rumors, all this innuendo, and all these stories that came up in the uh, newspaper that really came to nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was just, again, that idea of not being able to make that ultimate decision on what to do, and it just cost him. And he finally went bankrupt. Again, the team, the uh, the league tried to keep him. Maybe somebody will buy him. Maybe somebody will buy him for next year. And they just kind of left him hanging, left him dangling there. The poor players are like, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, you yeah. Oh, hold on one second. Before we get into the, to the rest of this story, uh, a couple other things here. John DeLorean, I'm fascinated by this because it seemed like he entertained the thought of purchasing the wheels mid-season for quite some time. In the end, he when he realized how desperate the financial situation was, he obviously turned his back on it. But why did it take him so long to finally make that decision? What was that process like? Well, I, I think a lot of it, he was, he was still running his car company. I think, you know, I don't know how much, um, attention he was it was given to it on a day to day basis. I mean, he had some of his his lawyers looking into it. He had some business associates looking into it. Um, but he just you know he kind of you know maybe I'll do it. And I think he just thought about it a long time. Um, and he finally just said, you know, there's just way too much. I think it was I don't know how much it was. It was some god awful amount that they owed. Yeah. That you know he just said, you know, I'm not going to dump this. I'm not going to throw good money after bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he just finally said, no, this is not going to work. So mm-hmm. he was kind of like their last hope after Upton Bell. And, you know, with that, that was just it. There was nobody going to buy him. Nobody was going to move him. Uh, nobody wanted him. And uh, it was just a sad, again, sad story that, you know, the the players and the, and the front office personnel and anybody who associated with the team had to bear the brunt of all this. Mm-hmm. All this ineptitude that they had, mm-hmm. and some of that ineptitude, or some of the financial uh, uh, difficulties, again reared an ugly head in Philadelphia, where the team. Another funny story or sad story. They didn't even have enough money to pay for tape for the players for their ankles. Yep. Yeah, that was that was actually. That was actually on my birthday, or August twenty eighth. I turned sixteen, and uh, yeah, that was. Uh, they they went there and they run out of uh, you know tape to tape their angles. They didn't have any, so they finally. Uh, I think uh, I think it was John Henderson, the wide receiver, he used to play in the NFL. He saw the guy from uh, I think it was Johnson and Johnson, and cornered him and said, "Hey, look, we need some tape." We don't have any. We're not going out on the field without, you know, taping our ankles. We're not going to play. So they finally got this guy to give them enough tape to be able to tape their ankles. And uh, again, it was another game they lost late. Mm-hmm. I think it was like twenty-seven, twenty-three. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you know, it was just the idea that again, just these stories, just never ending, just week by week. Mm-hmm. It was not like a 
okay, we had this bad run. Now we're doing well. It was just week to week to week of, you know, hardships happening that, you know, the players were just sabotaged as far as any kind of success they might have had. They just didn't have the, the, the background to help them. Yeah, you know, you know what I want to know is how desperate did it get for the players? They they weren't receiving checks. How did they eat? How did they pay their rent? How did they support their families? Why did they keep playing? Well, you know, a lot of it went back to that just love of the game. You know, they love playing football, and you know, a lot of the team, a lot of the team, they moved their families in together into one apartment. So some of the players moved into one of apartment. Um, you know, they just, um, they did whatever they could to try to get through, hoping that something would happen, hoping that something would come. You know, a lot of the guys lived on, if they did have a signing bonus, they lived on their signing bonus. Um, it was just, you know, just something that, you know, they, they, they really had a, a tough time of it, not being able to pay bills, you know, um, but, you know, they moved their, their families in together. They were hoping they were going to move, you know, to Charlotte or any other city, someplace where they'd be wanted, because they obviously weren't wanted in Detroit or Ypsilanti or any place there in, in that area of Michigan. Um, so it was just something that, you know, they, they it, like I said, again, just a week-to-week thing. That it was just amazing stories about what they put up with, um, what little money they had, um, trying to live together. Coaches would move in with the players. The coaches mm. would move in, live in. The one coach was living in the other coach's basement. Um, the one coach was looking for uh, apartments, but as soon as he said he worked for the wheels, they turned him down because <laughs> they didn't trust their checks. So, yeah, so, I mean, it was just, you know, they were looking in the hotels with kitchenettes, just anything just to live somewhere that they could, you know, afford to with no money coming in. You know, some of them had probably saved up a little money, mm-hmm. but it was just amazing. I mean, to me, it's just amazing stories on a weekly basis that, you know, just boggles the imagination. Mm-hmm. What was the final straw? What was the final straw that ultimately led to the demise and end of the Detroit Wheels that saw them terminate operations just 14 games into a 20-game season? Well, it, you know, again, they, they were hoping somebody was going to still buy them. They were hoping they were going to be moved. They try to keep them together. The players were saying, "No, we're out of here," but they finally and uh, they finally folded. They finally just said, "No, we're giving up the ghost. That's it. We've had enough. We, these poor guys have been uh, um, have been put through enough." It was about a week after they had the uh, creditors in the courtroom for the bankruptcy court. It was on October 10th that they finally uh, removed them from the schedule. Um, and then about 12 days later, they had a draft where they drafted the the Wheels players, the other teams. They didn't draft a whole lot of them. A lot of the players did not get picked. Um, and uh, I think it was about 16 of the 35 players got picked. So, um, again, it was a, you know, a lot of the players just went on, went on with their lives. It was a life's work, as they say with Chuck Knoll says, they went on with their life's work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, you know, though, 
it wasn't just the wheels. It was the front office of the WFL that really has to, or or at that time, had to share the brunt of the responsibility for the ineptitude of the management of this team and the way they treated this team. Because what's even more amazing, you said 12 days later, there was this dispersal draft. But in between, it was still so topsy-turvy. The league yeah. said the team was done. Then they said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're going to resurrect you next year, so we're not going to let you guys go play for another team through the dispersal draft. Some players, I think it was even Bubba Weish, went out and signed a contract with another team, but they said, no, you can't sign sign with them. Then, then finally, the league said, never mind. What was it about this team? that was so topsy-turvy or about the league that that they couldn't make a final decision. I mean, they were playing with the lives of these players. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. And and one of the things I, I pointed out in my book was that Detroit was one of the big market TV markets, so they basically kept this, tried to keep this team together to sell TV spots, basically, because Chevrolet was one of the big sponsors of the league. They knew they could get some money out of, you know, out of TV revenue because of the fact they had, you know, Detroit was one of the teams. They basically kept it together so long just to sell some TV spots. I mean, you know, just to think about that, you know, like you said, they're playing with these players' lives and their livelihoods and just to sell some TV spots. So it was just, you know, they they didn't help the, the, the wheels out at all. I think they helped out some other teams. But they really didn't go to bat for the wheels. I mean, and, and Davidson admitted, Gary Davidson said that we tried some of the same things we did with the WHA, which worked there, but they didn't work in football. Hmm. So again, there was that idea of the lack of experience, even at the league level, saying, well, we'll you know, like he said, eventually, finally said, you know, we should have just folded that team a couple weeks into the season and, you know, you know, disperse their players at that time instead of trying to keep them alive and letting them kind of dangle there for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the some of the some of the ideas that they worked in the WHA did not, you know, work in the WFL. It's a completely different different set of rules, different set of uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, circumstances as far as football from hockey. Mm-hmm. So they just didn't work, and then you know, again, that was. A, a lack of, um, I'm not sure if it's a lack of caring, but I think that I had to play into it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like you said, to keep a team like that, okay, we're going to keep you together. Now, all right, we're going to fold you. No, wait a minute, we're going to keep you together. That just shows a lack of real, you know, respect and for the team, for the team, for the players, for the front office to kind of dangle them out like that and just kind of like let them like hanging there by a thread and, and that thread of hope and saying, okay, no, okay, we're going to keep it together. No, all right, we're going to fold. No, no, you know, it's just, <laughs> it was just crazy. It was just, you know, why did you just let them go? Okay, we'll fold this team and, you know, or made a decision at the league level to move them mm-hmm. to another city. If you're mm-hmm. going to move them to Louisville, move them there. If you're going to move them to Little Rock or Shreveport or wherever it was, you know, at least do it and get it over with. Like I said, nobody can make a decision. Mm-hmm. And that really, uh, uh, you know, ultimately really was the, what really hurt the team and the league itself. 
mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you saying that Gary Davidson recognized that they should have done something earlier in the season sort of answers the question, should this have come as a surprise? But let's take that one step further. Should there have ever should there have ever been a Detroit Wheels franchise? Well, in my opinion, there shouldn't have been. I go with a lot of the interviews I've read with former players and, and league personnel that say, instead of the 12 teams and 20 games, which was insane. To yeah, begin we can't with, even get the NFL to play 17 right now. Right. <laughs> and these guys play 20 games. Um, you're talking like two college seasons, you know, mm-hmm. in a row right together. But anyway, you know, it was just the idea that um, they should have started with like eight teams, cut out some of these teams that you knew were going to be weak. I mean, in hindsight, yes, it's easy to see, okay, we didn't, we shouldn't have played them. But, you know, New York shouldn't have had a team, not at the beginning, because you, you, you've got the Yankees and the Mets are playing at, at Shea Stadium because Yankee Stadium is being refurbished at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you had no place to play. You had no dates there because they're both those teams, if one team's on the road, the other team's at home, and then he just switched. Mm-hmm. So you had no open dates for them to play there. So you got them wound up like we talked earlier on, on Randall's Island and Downing Stadium. You know, maybe add them later as an expansion team down the road when you've got Yankee Stadium that's open. I'm sure they've done great. You know, any team in New York, you know, usually does fairly well, even if it's a, a, a rival league team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually do pretty well, but that was a mistake. Philadelphia, they couldn't have got the vet. Uh, was his name Frank Rizzo? The mayor said, "No, you're not coming into Philly. Uh, you're not going to come into the vet. You're not going to get Franklin Field." So they wound up at, at JFK, which had a hundred thousand seats, which sounds great, but <laughs> it was really poor sight lines. Yeah, and it was old. It was crumbling, and you know, then you had um, Chicago wasn't bad. Hawaii was still playing in what the, they called the Termite Palace, which was an old wooden stadium. Uh, the Aloha Stadium, which was where the NFL now plays the Pro Bowl, was not built yet. And mm-hmm. it wasn't built mm-hmm. until the second season. So, again, you could have maybe held them back to the next year, the year after, when they had Aloha Stadium, when they had a better facility to play. Um, you know, they had Jacksonville. And Orlando, but they were too close to each other, I thought, mm-hmm. that they kind of took fan bases from each other. Pick one or the other, you know. Um, I think Jacksonville might have done better of the two because they had a better, they had a Gator Bowl, which sat, I think it was like, um, what, 70,000 or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Orlando had uh, the Tangerine Bowl, which wasn't what it is now. It was tiny. It was like 18,000 seats or something. And then again, they had to erect little temporary bleachers just to fill out the uh, capacity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, eight teams, 14 games. If you'd have had 14 games, Detroit and Jacksonville wouldn't have folded. They'd have just ended the season. Houston probably wouldn't have moved to Shreveport with two games left. They'd have probably just stayed in Houston for two weeks. So you wouldn't have had all that bad publicity of all these teams struggling, either folding or moving. New York would have still been in New York, even as bad as they were with that with that field, but they wouldn't have folded. So you wouldn't have had any teams folding after 14 games. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, we're done. You know, we've had struggles, but we hadn't had any real bad issues except for paper game. That was the thing that really hurt them, I think. But, you know, you didn't have all these teams folding or moving or whatever it was. 
and you probably cut out some of the some of the weaker teams. Detroit, obviously, I don't I don't think they should have really, at least not at the beginning. If they could have waited until again, maybe added them as an expansion team later on down the road when you had Tiger Stadium available after that lease with the with the Lions um, ran out and they were in Pontiac. Maybe add them again as another expansion team, much like New York. Chicago, I think they did all right. They did fine. They just had some really bad injuries, and they decimated their team. And they got they lost their last twelve games or something like that. And uh, but they did pretty well for a while. They did attendance wise, they did pretty well. Memphis and Birmingham, obviously, they were good choices. Um, Houston wasn't. They moved to Shreveport. Um, but you know, I think they just if they started small. Much like the AFL did, they had eight teams at the beginning. Pretty much kept it that way until the you know they were established, mm-hmm. and they added a couple of expansion teams like Miami and uh, Cincinnati. But they were already established by then. They had that big TV contract, right. which again was another thing that really hurt the WFL. They had TVS, which I remember, um, you know, back in the day watching them like college basketball or something, you know, on TVS, you know, on the, the independent mm-hmm. station. Because yep. nobody else wanted them, they were all hooked on with the uh, NFL. You know, CBS, ABC, and uh, NBC all had contracts with the NFL. And if they would have waited a couple years, and when ESPN started like late seventies, ESPN would have probably jumped to the chance to have them, sure, you know, giving them a contract. But you know, they they started when they did. You know, it's just all these factors. The the, the economy in the at the time was terrible in the country. Nobody had any disposable income to go to sporting events. I mean, even even the NFL was having, you know, the no-shows at the time, you know, and having problems with that, with attendance kind of dropping a little bit. So, you know, and you didn't have the millionaires, didn't have that 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 money they wanted to throw out, much like Upton Bell or John DeLorean. They didn't, because of the economy, they didn't, just didn't have that extra money they could throw at a team and say, okay, I'll save this team. I'm, I'll buy it, save it from the brink of disaster, and we'll have a team, we'll keep the team here in Detroit. So I think, you know, there's so many factors that played into this with the economy, the bad decisions, with the bad timing, with the bad choices of ownership, with Bud Huckle being in there at the beginning, and, uh, you know, and then the 33 investors with no leader, um, just a lot of different aspects and different things that just, were playing against this league from the beginning and just, just, you know, made it just impossible for them to succeed, to uh, gain a foothold with the credibility, uh, to try to re- compete against the NFL in some level. Um, there's just too many bad stories that, of course, the NFL is going to play up and the press, which is in the NFL city, they're going to play up because they don't want to have them succeed. They're a rival. They're going to, mm-hmm. you know, accentuate all these bad stories and run them ad nauseum until, you know, fans just like, we. I mean, sitting here talking to you, we were chuckling all the way through it. And some of these, you know, some of these stories were just amazingly, you know, amazing ineptitude of the owners and, and the front office at the league level, as well as some of the team level. Right. So it was just an amazing thing that just you know, so many factors going against them that, you know, I just don't think it had a chance. And yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think they should have been a Detroit team, at least not at the beginning, maybe again down the road. Once you had access to Tiger stadium where you can rent it, 
and get maybe better crowds. Then you add them as a, an expansion team. At the beginning, no, I, I, I think that's probably why Davidson didn't have them as an original franchise to begin with until he mm-hmm. got talked into it by Coleman Young. So mm-hmm. I really think that, that I, you know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, sure. And it's great to look back and say, we knew this would have failed. But at the time you did, you know, you're just taking a chance. You're throwing the, throwing the dice, seeing where they're going to land, throwing things against the wall, see if they're going to stick. And, you know, that's pretty much what they did. And, but, you know, it's just a lot of bad decisions. I think that, you know, again, hindsight's great to look back and say, no, that would have been worked. But, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say that now, but at the time they thought maybe it would work. And obviously, and ultimately it did. Right. And amazingly, the WFL tried to make a go of it for a second season, but, but, but that failed. Hey, what is the legacy of the wheels? Does anyone in Detroit even remember there was such a team? <laughs> I wonder if they do. I don't know. I really don't. Um, you know, I talked to some of the players that had gone on to, um, you know, play that played for Florida. Some of them would have gone on there, there, and you know they remembered their time there. I don't know. I don't know what their legacy is. They, you know, because of the fact they didn't have a lot of big name players. Um, the one guy who was a fairly big name who didn't sign. Well, he did sign, but he never played for him. Was Warren McVeigh, the old Bengals and the Chiefs running back, who was very talented, but he just wanted too much money. He wouldn't play with, you know, he, he'd signed a contract for a certain amount. Then uh, Zonka, Kick, and Warfield signed with the Dolphins for a lot more. Said he said, oh, I signed too early. I want more money. They weren't giving it to him. He just walked out, didn't play. Um, wound up, you know, again, not. You mean, not you, mean Zonka, you mean Zonka, you mean, you mean Zonka, Warfield, and, and Kick played, uh, signed with Hawaii or something, not the Dolphins. They left the Dolphins. No, they left the Dolphins. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about yeah, that, Warren. I, I, yeah, I, I, they I, left the Dolphins yeah. to sign with, at the time, was Toronto, and then they moved to Memphis. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, they signed there with them, and uh, and, and Warren McFay had already signed with the Wheels, but he signed for a, a certain amount. And then when he saw that this, the three Miami guys had signed for so much money with Memphis, oh, I want more money now. These guys got this much. I want this much. So, they weren't going to give it to him. Um, they wind up, you know, going back and forth for weeks, uh, whether he's going to play or not. He wound up not playing. Um, and again, just not having anybody on the team that was kind of a fairly big name, not signing the future contracts to say, here's who's coming next year. Hold out. We're a new team, but next year we've got whoever it might be, you know, coming back, um, you know, coming on to join a team. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me and to talk about the Detroit Wheels, your book. Absolutely terrific. Nothing but a brand new set of flat tires. The sad, sorry saga of the 1974 Detroit Wheels of the World Football League. So let me ask you, what's next? What are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on a, a, a book about the uh, San Antonio Wings who played in 75. Um, they were basically kind of a resurrection of the Florida Blazers after they folded up. Um, they got a, um, 
they had a dispersal draft where they drafted some players from the league. Um, did fairly well for a basically an expansion team. A lot of people figured they'd go 0 and 20. They wound up winning the. They they divided the league into separate uh, summer and fall seasons in '75. They won the summer uh, Western Division Championship by going. Uh, I think it was seven and three. Uh, the first ten games did well. They had Johnny Walton who went on to play for the Eagles. Um, they had a lot of veteran players who played for Florida. Um, a lot of good stories coming out of that. Um, I think you'll be surprised by some of them. I know I was uh-huh. when I found out some of them. Um, but yeah, that's my next one coming out. I'm working on it. It's coming together fairly well. Not sure when it's going to be out. I'm sure it'll probably be sometime by this time, probably next year. So, um, but that's the next one that's coming out. Again, a lot of good stories. Um, a lot of intrigue behind the scenes things going on because they had a team. I'm speaking of semi pro football. They had the San Antonio Toros that played for like a decade um, that were really popular in the city, did quite well, great on the field, great at the gate, did very well. And they basically come in and kind of kicked them to the curb and took over uh, a lot of legal back and forth mumbo jumbo between the, the owner of the Toros and the owner of the, of the wings and uh, just a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but they, again, like a lot of like the, the Florida Blazers the year before, um, weren't doing all that great. Were asked to take drastic pay cuts at one time in the season, but kept winning. Um, and again, had some you know a little bit better as far as a team. Uh, but you know, just some great stories again. Mm-hmm. So that's the one I'm working on now. Should like I said, should be out sometime next year. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it, and I hope you'll consider coming back on to talk about it. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you, Warren. I appreciate it. Yes, I would definitely like to come back. I enjoyed it, and I appreciate you having me on your show. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Like so many of the other pretenders, the World Football League was flawed from the beginning. And the one team that really defined all All that was wrong with the WFL was the Detroit Wheels. The WFL tried something a little different. At the time, the NFL had a 14-game season. The WFL launched with a 20-game season, and the Wheels were disbanded after just 14 games with a record of 1-13. The Wheels played just five of those games at home. They played a sixth as the home team in Canada. But those five home games at Reinerson Stadium were lightly attended at best. And these numbers are based on tickets sold, not how many fans actually came through the turnstiles. So far fewer actually saw the Wheels play at home. In their home opener against Florida, the Wheels lost 18-14 in front of 10,631 fans. Against Birmingham in their second home game, attendance was reportedly 14,614, but as Mark explained earlier, no way that many people showed up to watch the Detroit Wheels. Against Memphis, again, 14,424, no way. Chicago, 
10,300. Again, no way. And in their final game at Reinerson Stadium against the Southern California Sun, the crowd was reportedly a very small 6,351. Barely 2,000 showed up. Like Mark said, playing so far outside the city limits certainly affected the Wheels' popularity, and when you combine that with 33 investors in a team, none of whom with any experience operating a professional football franchise or wanting to become the face of the franchise, the odds of success were minimal. The Detroit Wheels were doomed from the start, and it showed. Thanks again to Mark Speck for joining us on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You can get his book, Nothing But a Brand New Set of Flat Tires, at places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you buy your books. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at perhaps the greatest backup quarterback in the history of the NFL, Earl Moore. That's next time. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.